You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Derange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven, and my friend Arthur Parkinson. But today, Arthur is actually not replaced by, but instead of, we have Shane Connolly, who is one of my very, very favourite florists for lots of reasons. One, I love his incredibly relaxed garden-based constant spry style. So very, very beautiful appreciation of oddities and eccentricities of plants that you get that are garden plants rather than grown in a greenhouse or in a polytunnel. And also because he has really brought the whole sustainability thing of floristry to the fore. And for that, he should be incredibly proud. So welcome, Shane. It's lovely to have you, in fact, back on the podcast. Back again. Yeah, like a bad penny. And what a lovely introduction. Thank you, Sarah. You know, it, it's great. It's great to be somewhere where you have a sort of kindred soul, kindred approach to things. And, you know, I feel much more affinity with gardeners and people who are who have sort of got their feet in the garden than I do with people who have their feet in design. So thank you. It's lovely to be here again. You do, Shane, but actually you are a, a wonderful, wonderful designer. And I always think the best designers are where you walk into a room or a space that is just so enhanced by what that person's done to it. And yet it's not all about them. It's about the space. And that's what I always feel about your flowers is they almost feel like they kind of grew there or they just feel so natural in their environment. And um, I remember at one of your talks, you showed us a slide of, I think, a Kardashian wedding with many, many, many thousands, tens of thousands of roses on a beach. And it's just like, why would you have roses on a beach? And your style is completely the opposite of that. It's a real sense of place and a sense of beauty. That's so important. I don't want a party or an event or a wedding to feel uncomfortable for the client or for the guests. And sometimes I think those you wouldn't feel human anymore. You would feel like you're in some odd place. And I, I want people to feel more relaxed. You know, when you go into a garden, of course you want to be extraordinarily touched and moved and overwhelmed by the scale of things in a, in a grand garden. But you, you want to be more in touch with what's natural and what's quirky, what's unusual. And, and it doesn't work when you, do, when you just pour money at it. Absolutely. I remember you demonstrating uh, on one of our workshop tours and the thing that I, I'll never forget that you used was mildewy courgette leaves and it was just completely genius because they were sort of stippled and marbled with silver and they were utterly, utterly beautiful and yet all of the rest of us, including me, had just dumped mine on the compost heap. Well, now I can tell you I don't. I absolutely revel in my mildewy courgette leaves. <laughs> Maybe not all the year round. You know, you might not want them in, in spring. It, it is one of those things. Constance Spry used to say that she liked to start at the compost heap and the vegetable garden first when she was designing flowers for a house. Did she wouldn't she? have used even the word designing. She would have said arranging. Nowadays we say design and we say create. 
and you know spry would have said she would have said a range yes and she liked to look at what was was sort of at this time of year in the compost heap what was in the vegetable garden and it's telling a story then you know yeah. it's it's exactly what gardeners do we all we you know you you talk about your lasagna bulb planting in a pot it's telling the story and i think yeah. flower designers or flower rangers should do the same they should they should be trying to work out what is next? What's going to come up next? And how can I give that feeling of depth? And it only works with finding things like mouldy courgette leaves, yes. looking for opportunities. <laughs> very good, very good. So I would love you to talk us through your kind of pillars of sustainable floristry. And again, I mean, you know, some of these I know personally I've thought about quite a bit, which is what attracted me to your stuff in the first place. But just, yeah, give us the building blocks of how to be a sustainable florist. Oh, gosh, how to be. I think, you know, we're all struggling to be. Uh, there's nobody perfect. I think that's the most important thing, that you, you don't think you're getting it wrong because you're not perfect. It is impossible to be perfect. What, cutting a bunch of flowers in the garden and bringing it in, even that probably has mm. its own carbon footprint. So I do think that realizing small steps is the first thing to try to be more sustainable. And I think the thing that we mostly miss out nowadays is about the, 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 these words, the word sustainable. Mm. And what does it mean? I mean, basically, sustainability is trying to think what you can take that isn't going to take away from the needs of the future. You know, as simple as that. And that, that's so important, I think, also to realize that biodegradable is much abused. And, and that word is simply everything. Everything is biodegradable eventually. Bury an old tractor in the ground and it will eventually rot. But what does it produce? You know, we're, yes. that's the bit that we're not being made enough aware of. Yes. And so we, the word that we really want is compostable. And yeah. I think that's what, as a flower designer or as a gardener, indeed, you should be thinking, what yeah. am I doing that is not compostable? And can I change that? You know, do I want plastic labels on plants? No, I don't want it. What is, what is my alternative? And, and that's how I try to approach my flower work and flower design, whatever we want to call it. It's trying to think what is compostable and therefore truly sustainable. Uh, it doesn't always work, you know, really. So, so um, if you were doing a, a, a wreath coming up to Christmas now, that would mean using a wood base that you just go and find some pliable Stem, silver birch, or dogwood, or whatever from your garden. Willow. Willow, of course. Anything. I mean, yeah. there's so much. Yeah. Willow's great. Yeah. So that's exactly that. And then using, because I historically have, have used florists, real wire. And I remember you quite rightly ticking me off saying, Sarah, yes. you don't need to use real wire because <laughs> it's not compostable. You can use good old <laughs> twine. Yes. And you can. And this is the thing. So, you know, you have to evaluate all these things. And okay, if I was a florist on a little high street in a, a, a small village, and I had to produce 300 wreaths for 20 pounds each, I might not be able to do it the way that I want to do it. That raises other questions. Should we be doing them for 20 pounds each? Ignore that one. I would ideally like to use a willow base. So I know it's completely compostable. I would ideally like to use jute twine, and people say, oh, that doesn't give you the same control. It doesn't. But, but you know, our ancestors were doing it 20,000 years ago, maybe 2,000 years ago for sure. The Romans used to make garlands out of string and twine. 
yeah. and binding flowers together. And it is completely possible. You can tie knots in the string as you do it, which is what I do, like a sort of overlap of the string. Yeah. And then you produce something that is able to go straight onto a compost heap. Yeah. And and I feel that has to be the aim. If I'm making something for my clients, no way are they going to unwind all the wire and keep the wire base for next year. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And what about moss? Oh, but also I suppose, Shane, I just butt in there. I've actually got a big willow uh, wreath base. In fact, I bought, I'm ashamed to say, and I just unpick it every year and take all the compostable stuff off it and then stash that in the attic with everything else. And you could put that willow base on your compost heap and it would compost. You would have wasted your money buying it, but you could. You know, that's So I look at that as a guideline and that's what I'm aiming for. Yeah. Okay, good. And so then what about the very controversial subject that is moss? I know. This is a very difficult one. I mean... I don't know a gardener who doesn't rake moss off something mm. or push moss off stonework. or So you can easily find moss in your own domain. That, that, that therefore means you have to have a garden, which means that you are being elitist by the fact of saying get the moss yourself. Getting it from wild sources is also very, very bad news. So it is, it is a tricky one. There is no question that moss is better than foam for funeral things. So, you know, we're going on this step of sustainability. Would you rather use something that is less damaging to the environment and is compostable? Or would you rather use something that is really damaging? So moss is better. Another alternative to moss for certain things is ripped up newspaper, which, of course, then you can get into the argument that the newspaper killed a few trees to to produce that. But ripped up newspaper mixed in with twigs produces Mm. a very nice, damp place for flowers. Okay, good. So there are are definitely alternatives. Moss is just a lovely thing to use. Mm. It's just very, it's it's very hard to get a sustainable source unless it's your own front garden. Yeah, well, let's hope quite a lot of our listeners have got front gardens. And then what about what you're going to put onto it in at this time of year when most flowers that we traditionally put in our houses are not in season? So absolutely roses are completely out because they've got to yep. fly from the other side of the world. Uh, but I just wondered if you talk through the things that you think are the most sustainable. So when I'm asked to do an event from about October till before Christmas, I always get a bit anxious, even after 33 years, because I'm always worried about the client's expectations. If a client left it entirely up to me, if it was my own party, I would be very content with the quirky and the odd, you know, at this time of year, mushrooms, nuts, fruits, branches. And then there are the odd flowers. You know, Tanya Compton, who you interviewed not very long ago, is a friend of mine, and she had a lunch last week. And she had the most exquisite flowers in the world along the table, including little autumn cyclamen arranged in the tiniest little vases. Mm. And it was utterly breathtakingly beautiful. It was perfect. And there are winter flowering viburnums, winter flowering winter sweet. These things are not sadly grown by a lot of growers because, you know, the, the bang per buck is not, the buck per bang or whatever the expression is, is not very good. And so, you know, growing a winter flowering uh, viburnum to cut seven branches every two years is not economically viable. 
if I were doing it for a client, I would love to buy those plants in bloom, use those in the room, give that wonderful scent of viburnum, give that wonderful scent of winter sweet. If you're looking to tell the story of what's happening in nature, you'll always find a way. Because, you know, give me a time of year where you don't go for a walk in the country and see something that touches you. It's um, without question, there's always something. But unfortunately, there's also Instagram, so people see that. <laughs> but that's, again, one of your great things. And one of the things you're so famous for is the royal wedding between our now king and the queen consort. And that that extraordinary avenue of trees down the Westminster Abbey, down the aisle. And you're doing that again, aren't you? Literally like next week or something. Not, not, not another royal wedding, but you're doing an event. <laughs> it, yeah, the, the, the National Memorial Arboretum is planting a new area to remember the, the dead of COVID. And there's going to be a service in the Abbey where the, the saplings and the trees are blessed. So we're not creating an avenue. It won't be, it won't be quite the same. It will be a, a sort of a big central installation of saplings and a tree and uh, ferns and uh, like a forest floor in the middle of the abbey, which will then be brought up to the National Memorial Arboretum and planted in, uh, to become part, an extension to the woodlands there. So it's very special, yeah. And and devoid of flowers. Do we need that's you know? Yes. I would love to do uh, write a book, Sarah, called "Do We Need Flowers?" Yes. <laughs> you know, but, it might not be a bestseller. I, but, think, uh, I think it might not be a bestseller. <laughs> As a flower addict myself, I'm not sure. Um, anyway, so so back to our wreath. What's going on next? Then, so we've got our willow base. We've got moss collected from the back garden. It's attached with jute twine. And then we're adding things yep. from the garden. So what are your favorite hips and berries? If we're sort of thinking December time now, so the real abundance of the autumn has gone. So we're more pared back November, December time. Um, what are your favorites for putting on a wreath? Well, I mean, every type of evergreen thing is beautiful on a wreath. I do. I love herbs. I love using rosemary in a wreath, uh, thyme. Yeah. You know, they dry out slightly, but the, the, the scent is so special. All the evergreen pines, all worth using, especially the small needled ones that are a bit more shapely rather than the blue yes. pine, which is sort of traditionally used by florists. Yes. And anything that tickles your fancy, branch, little bits of branch with, with lichen. Yes. All those things together become something much more than they are separately. I think I think sometimes people think they have to use really special things but actually it's the effect of it all bound into a circle that becomes magical and scale what what scale do you have at home well of course the scale depends on the door i'm i'm not very good at making controlled wreaths yes i look in envy at some people posting photographs of these beautifully exquisitely made ones ours are inclined to look a bit scruffy yeah good like the labrador did it um, <laughs> whatever way i try uh, so <laughs> i like to say don't be anxious. Do, do do let yourself go. But I think that's because that's what happens to our wreaths anyway. Yes. When we produce them. I mean, we don't really get clients who want a neat wreath. No, quite, <laughs> quite, quite. Topiary wreath. Yeah. And so then walking in, uh, if, if I'm going to take you back to home in Herefordshire now, walking through your front door, so there's your wreath. And then what else? You've got the most beautiful house. I've been very, very lucky to 
visit Shane at home and have dinner with him. And it's it, it absolutely exquisite uh, sitting room, drawing room. So what would you have in there? Well, in there, I like to do something on the mantle because it's a very big, broad mantle. It's also just painted, so it's not precious. I might not, in a client's house with, with sort of special marble or something, I might be a bit less yeah. gung-ho. Okay. So I like to do something on that mantle, but I don't, what I do is I bring in branches, usually whatever you've cut off the bottom of the Christmas tree to make it fit in the pot, whatever you've sort of trimmed to get the car passed out of the, uh, out of the garage, that yeah. sort of thing, and yes. just pile it, literally pile it, but perhaps I do it more artistically than I'm giving myself credit for, Yeah. on the mantle with candles. No. Perfect fire risk in every way. <laughs> uh, lovely, yeah, we always have to do that. I, I do love mistletoe. I really love mistletoe. And Worcestershire and Herefordshire, where we are, is you know mistletoe central. And every everywhere you look, mistletoe is is growing. Mm. So I do love to put mistletoe through things. I, I love the uh, translucence of that little berry. Yes, yeah. So that's what I do on the mantle. Um, one year I did it with just glass vases of all sorts of sizes with just things with berries but i didn't like that as much it looked it looked too self-conscious ah, for me okay too um, contrived you know uh, people would come and visit and say oh wow that's clever and i don't like the word <laughs> clever <laughs> and then on your on your christmas tree what's on your christmas tree every bit of crap since 1976 good i, I don't have a designed christmas tree i've bought things that i have liked i've got some things from when i was a child and I've, oh, I've got lovely old crystal chandelier droplets. Uh, really like those for Christmas trees. Yeah. And you can still buy them. I mean, you know, go on. I'm, I'm going to sell everyone out. Go to Etsy and you can buy perfectly acceptable ones. And they look, they're magical on a Christmas tree. Quite heavy, but magical. And then uh, on your Christmas table. So when I came to dinner with you, you had the most beautiful thing of these pots of the micro cherry tomato. And also you used them in those beautiful Venetian blown vases. But when you're having your Christmas lunch with Candida, what's on the table? Nothing very dissimilar to what you had. I, I, um, I very rarely plan Christmas table for us. I think when my nieces and nephews were younger... Well, I might have made a bit more of an effort to be a theme. I think we did Lord of the Rings Christmas once, but we won't talk about that. Uh, <laughs> I think I just like to have, well, Christmas roses. There's yes. always some Christmas rose in a pot left over from work things. Yes. And I really love them. So, you know, I'll have collections of those in pots. We have winter sweet growing in the garden. Oh, lovely. I think it's one of my favorite shrubs of all time. And it always is in bloom on Christmas Day. And a few stems of that, so you get this wonderful scent. If there's a hyacinth or three left over from work, again, in pots and lots of candles. Yeah, fantastic. You know, I don't, I don't ever have to buy anything. I'm very lucky. Yes. But I like the feelings. Collections of things, I think, always look much more characterful mm. and personal. Yeah. And so I wouldn't ever think that I do an arrangement. <laughs> it's not an no. arrangement. And it's certainly not pre-listed and pre-planned. Never. No, gosh. So, Shane, tell us a little bit more about the whole Oasis debate. I mean, obviously, I'm totally converted and we disposed of ours quite a few years ago. But, but let's talk through to the people who aren't quite there yet why Oasis is really no longer a contender as, to use as a florist. 
Well, I think nobody could have missed the news that floral foam is not biodegradable. It is not compostable. It is full of microplastics. And I think maybe that's the biggest problem. It's soaked in water. We pull the plug out. All the water goes down the sink into marine world. Mm. And that is the big problem. The chemicals we don't know. There are substitutes that have been produced, including one that's called biofoam, but the biofoam simply falls apart quicker, so its microplastics are produced more quickly. (laughs) Uh, That's an appealing thing. There's also one made from recycled plastic, quite proudly. And you think, okay, so that's just making it all happen twice. You know, foam, foam is not needed. I think that's the simplest thing for people to know. When you make the decision not to use it anymore for environmental reasons, it's fine. You are going to be fine. You know, honestly, you're not going to be curtailed in any single way. You might have to think a bit more. And mm-hmm. sometimes you might have to think, how can I keep that alive without foam? And it, you, you get more creative. Yeah. But I think it's important for people to know that foam is the tip of the sustainable iceberg. And it's the easiest thing to give up. Giving up ice cream is harder. Let me tell you, yeah. giving up foam is not difficult. Yeah. And it opens up so many more doors and so much more creativity. But the next problem is, of course, where the flowers come from. And it's so easy in Perch Hill, the flowers don't need to come from anywhere except outside the door. But for people who can't have that luxury, you need to start asking questions. Yeah. The consumer and the, the florist, where are these flowers coming from? What is their carbon footprint? And to me, the easiest thing to start your journey in that is to think seasonal. What is in season in my part of the world? Don't look at Instagram and say, but look, there's tulips in Australia. That's not relevant. Look at what's in season and make that your guide. Because even if you're using imported things, if they're seasonal, they won't have been grown with quite so much energy uh, in their production. And I think it's really important. I think seasonal is the word that goes with sustainability in food and in flowers. Absolutely. And I know that's what you teach at Perch Hill. That's, that's, your, that's your creed. And that's yeah. why you know, it's such a special place to go to. Everything you eat is seasonal. Everything you, you arrange with is seasonal. Is there, yeah. a, is there a problem with that? I don't get the problem. No problem. We're, <laughs> we should all be in agreement. So just to finish up, I would love to hear from you what have been your highlights of 2022 what have been the great moments before we move into a new year? Teaching at Perch Hill, obviously. <laughs> obviously. Obviously, but you can't underestimate the, the, the you know, the, the kindred soulness is very important. I think we, we did an extraordinary wedding in Germany mm. and were able to pick from the gardens of the house it was in. And I know that's a real luxury. And I am completely aware that even saying it sets you apart. But... It is possible. Mm. I, think, I think that's the extraordinary thing. It is possible. And if there is a trust with the client that you will produce something beautiful, it's possible. Somebody this year, one of, one of my takeaways this year, someone said when she speaks with the client, she can tell them how it's going to feel, but she can't tell them how it's going to look when she talks about the flowers yeah. for an event. That's great. Isn't it? Yeah, that's great. You know, that's... And, Surely that's more important. Yeah. So you don't arrive for a client meeting with your list of expensive flowers and then your labor. Basically what you're sort of saying is 
this is the cost for for the work to get it done, but we're just going to go out into the garden and pick everything. And so that just makes budgets so much more manageable, doesn't it? Well, it, it, sadly, it doesn't always work like that because sometimes event organizers are in the middle and they want a, a, you know, a breakdown of every single pot on a table. But the ideal, in the ideal world, that's exactly how it would work, you know, that you would come to an agreement on the total and you would know the space and also you would know what the client liked or didn't like. You know, it's like cooking a meal for a friend. Do you have dietary issues? Oh, you know, if they hate the color yellow, you wouldn't use it. Of course you wouldn't. But you might. That, I always think that when things are too settled and set in stone, the client misses the real treats because you go into the flower market or you go to your grower and you see something magical, but you can't buy it because it's not on the list. Yes. And, you know, yes, it's so true. I don't want to do events like that anymore. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about the other highlights, or perhaps those two are enough. <laughs> it might be enough. Maybe they were it. <laughs> I, think, I think some of the highlights have been visiting gardens. Mm. I, wish, I wish every flower designer visited gardens more. The Garden Museum Literary Festival this year was at Chatsworth. And uh, yeah. I have to say that was a, a weekend of inspiration to listen yeah. to other people talking about how they approach design, to walk around the gardens with people who've designed them or who own them. Yeah. It's an extreme, you know, and it's available to everyone. This is available to everyone. It's not, you don't have, it's available over the counter, as they said, you don't need a prescription. And that's, you know, what I think feeds you and keeps you going. Well, thank you, Shane. Lovely to chat. And I hope we can have you back again sometime next year. But you, I just admire you so much and what you do. And I'm really looking forward to you coming back to Perch next spring, which I know you are. So thank you for being here and see you in 2023. Can't wait, Sarah. Thank you very much. And thank you for flying the flag for seasons. It's very important. You inspire us all. Seasonal Shane and Sarah. <laughs> See you soon. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Thanks so much for listening to Grow Coquita Range and thank you so much to Shane. Next week, we're starting a new format, actually. And I'm quite excited because I'm obsessed with take-home I want you all to get the maximum you possibly can out of these podcasts and to the time that you spend listening to them. And so we're going to start a series of the 12 best. So whether it be as it will be next week, the 12 best ever roses with Josie Lewis, our head gardener, or the 12 best plants for pollinators, or the 12 best lessons for small garden design, or, 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 it'll all be based around 12s. So join me then. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.